Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. It is Tuesday afternoon, which means it is time for another episode of Draft Deep Dives. So I am here, of course, with my Draft Deep Dives co-host, Tyler Metcalf. Tyler, how are you doing this fine Tuesday afternoon? Nick, I'm fantastic. Had a, had a lovely little holiday weekend um, and just excited to get back into it with you. Um, should, should, should be a fun episode. Yeah, so we are going to start off today's episode, which is going to cover international prospects by talking about your most recent Friday Screener article over at No Ceilings NBA. And you wrote about Usman Zhang and his perimeter defense. And Zhang has been one of the more fascinating prospects in this class for me to follow just because he's had a very interesting sort of stock curve from starting the year as like a top 10 slash lottery guy then having an awful start to the season, dipping into like second round projections even, and then having a really far, far better close to the season, which now has him back in lottery consideration again. So definitely an interesting year for Zhang and you covered his perimeter defense in particular. So why don't we start with that on Zhang? What are your thoughts on his perimeter defense, both in terms of sort of how he started the season and then what you saw from him as the season progressed for him and the New Zealand Breakers. Yeah, and it, it's kind of what you just said. It is a tale of two seasons, basically, for him, because that first half of the year for him was really some of the worst film of anyone in this draft class. And I know that sounds hyperbolic or extremist, but it was really bad. I, mean, he yeah, I don't find think it, it is extremist, honestly. <laughs> it was horrible. It was really bad. I and mean, he fell to like barely in the second round for me at one point in the middle of the year because he couldn't find a rhythm. He looked unsure. He lost all confidence. He lacked any sort of physicality or consistency on either end of the floor. And then something clicked in the second half of the year on both ends of the floor. We saw massive improvement. And what really stood out to me was kind of the change in mentality almost and execution of his defense. And that was astounding because we rarely ever see that. We kind of talked about it similar uh, to Bryce McGowan's shot selection last week, this is a similar kind of really shocking defensive turn that Jang took. Um, the way he moved his feet was really impressive at his size. Um, and it just got better as the season progressed, where he became more confident in moving his feet, flipping his hips, connecting the two, and not you know dropping one foot and then flipping his hips over that would put him a step behind. Um, he got a little more confident in his foot speed, allowing him to get to spots um, to cut off drives instead of just retreating with the guy and hoping to contest at the rim. There's still still a lot of those um, you know faults here and there, but there was significant improvement week by week with it, which is just really astounding stuff when you consider the age, the context, and how bad the first half of the season was. So something that I think carried over a little bit towards the end of the season, which I think is worth noting for him, is that he really struggled with contact. And that was something that I think he got better at as the season went on. But, you know, especially towards the beginning of the year, you know, he just looked a bit like a stick figure and, you know, got got pushed around a lot. And a comparison that our colleague Maxwell Bombach made was between Jang and Chet Holmgren, where mm -hmm. Chet Holmgren, you know, despite having some skinniness concerns, you know, he was someone who battled on every possession who, even if, you know, there was a bigger guy against him, Chet was not backing down against him at all. And, you know, even though that is still a bit of a concern for Usman Jang, it was interesting to see sort of how he dealt with 
that kind of contact and that kind of force against him on the defensive end over the course of the season. Yeah, I think when Maxwell first wrote about that, it was like just over halfway through their season or something. So yeah, I want to say uh, it was January. Apologies, yeah. Maxwell, if I'm misremembering your yeah, article. Yeah, this but... is sometime around there. But regardless, the, the the dominant you know bulk of the film was that first half of the year. And I just remember Maxwell saying that. He's like, they're skinny and then there's soft and there's a big difference. And I worry that Jing is soft. And I was just like that when he said that it was like right before I got into that second half of the year dive. And I was like, Oh no, like, Oh, that's, that's bad. Like you can't like teaching and coaching the softness out of a player. That's a lot harder to do than getting them to improve their rotations or, you know, improve their footwork. You can't change a mentality as much as you can change a skill. Um, So that really worried me. And then as that second half of the season progressed, we started to see some of that toughness come through. It's like, oh, okay. So you're not completely afraid of contact. It was almost like he just lacked any confidence in his defense to be in the right spot at the right time. And he was so just terrified of giving up layups or anything that his initial reaction every time when he would flip his hips and drop and have that drop step was to immediately retreat all the way back to the rim. And that just ruined his defensive fundamentals with his footwork. I don't know what happened. I don't know what clicked, but something did where he started just sliding his feet, flipping his hips in congruence with his feet and cutting off drives, bodying up guys, you know, not to the point where he's this enforcer, but, enough where he's now bumping them out of the, out of the lane or making them take a wider arc on their drives and little stuff like that. It makes all the difference in the world. And then the ability to really hone in those fundamentals, you know, that just made him even less susceptible to setbacks and pull up jumpers. So I think the confidence that you mentioned is really a key thing here. I think part of that is that the breakers were on track to be the worst team in NBL history (laughs) for like the first half of the season and I'm willing to bet that wasn't exactly all that great for Usman Jang's confidence. I mean, it probably wasn't that great for anyone's confidence, but, you know, it's a little bit more difficult when you're comparing Jang to guys who've been professionals for years and years. You know, it's a little bit easier for those guys to sort of get their confidence back on track, even after a tough start to the season. But, you know, it's not like the Breakers, you know, turned it around the second half of the season and became the best team in NBL history, but... I think there's a bit of a difference from just how bleak the team as a whole, you know, not just Jang, but the team as a whole looked over the first portion of the season versus, you know, how the whole team looked better down the stretch run of the season. And Jang was obviously a huge part of that, but, you know, I'm willing to bet that the team going from historically atrocious to just run of the mill bad was really helpful for Jang's confidence. And, you know, that shows up on both sides of the ball. But as you're talking about with his perimeter defense, it's certainly something where he was willing to trust his feet more later in the year than he was sort of earlier in the year where, you know, any one step out of place and he just kind of assumed the play was over. Yeah. And, you know, we more typically see when teams start off that poorly, we usually just see them quit and be like, all Mm -hmm. right, well, this season's going to suck. Let's just get through it. Let's get our paychecks. And they just go through the motions. And, you know, we, we saw it with his teammate uh, Hugo Basson too, who we'll talk about a little later. But we saw that mentality kind of shift too, and he was a dog on both ends of the floor. So I, I don't know if it was the coaching staff or the captain or the vet, whatever veterans on that team, but they kind of got these young guys believing in themselves a little more and working harder, and just that that sheer pivot in 
and attention to detail and commitment to fundamentals made a world of difference for, for Jang on both ends of the floor. So something that you bring up a little bit later in the article that I do want to touch on quickly. So, you know, the thing with him is his perimeter defense is something where you expect him to, you know, be able to switch two through four pretty regularly. But one clip that you point out towards the end of the piece is him as a point of attack defender, which is, you know, on the one hand, not something that you're going to see very much of, I'm willing to bet at the NBA Mm -hmm. level, but on the other hand, I think is immensely encouraging, you know, especially given how many jumbo playmakers there are in the NBA, his ability to defend at the point of attack as a 6'10", you know, power forward sized, at least in terms of height guy, I think is going to be really critical to him being able to become an effective piece at the NBA level sooner rather than later. Yeah, and just his his fluidity, his length, his uh, footwork, it, it all just... Hit. His is the foundation of this guy who can fit really easily into a really switchable scheme where he's not going to be targeted like most fours are in the pick and roll. Um, you know, early he probably will because they're learning curves and all young players typically suck at defense. But long term, <laughs> but long term, I don't think it's going to be an issue. Um, you know, I don't think he's going to be picking up Dar- guys like Darren Fox or, you know, Jalen Green or, you know, the, the, these quicker guards. I would guards. love to have him pick up De'Aaron Fox on a regular basis. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm sure you would. But with this transition <laughs> to, like you said, these wings initiating the offense, you know, I he's going to be able to pick up guys like Jalen Brown or Jason Tatum or, you know, if Draymond Green brings the ball up the floor or Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, you know, obviously these guys are more seasoned, more experienced. They'll be able to cook him early. But in the long run, that that archetype of defender, he's going to have the ability to pick up ball handlers from the start. And then when they get into their horns actions or pick and roll or, you know, whatever screening action they run, he's going to have the ability to switch that really seamlessly with another wing or bigger guard or mobile big man who can then switch onto the ball handler. So it, it just allows for a lot of really creative and different defensive looks that most teams can't really offer. It is fascinating just sort of philosophically to think about his defense in the longer term, especially given the tenor of the discussion around his draft stock, where, you know, in the middle of the year when it seemed like he really just hadn't figured anything out and was like, you know, lost deer in the headlights kind of look on the floor at all times, you know, it was okay, he's going to be a longer term project, right? Mm -hmm. Like if he works out, you know, don't expect anything to happen before like year three, year four. And you know, there's still some concerns. I think you noted particularly his off-ball defense is not as consistent as his on-ball defense was towards the end of the season. But it is fascinating to think sort of philosophically about, okay, you know, beginning of the year, it was like maybe by year three, year four, he's someone who can be a useful player. But given just how much he developed over the second half of the season, you know, all rookies are not great to somewhere between okay and god awful on the defensive end, you know, with very, very few exceptions. But with Jeng, you know, seeing just how much he improved over the second half of the NBL season, you know, it seems within reason that maybe he will struggle early on in his NBA career. But by the end of year one slash the start of year two, you know, it there's reason to believe that he will pick up a lot more by, you know, the start of year two than I would have assumed, you know, in January, right? Like in January, I've assumed, well, if he figures it out, it's going to be further down the road. And I don't know, now it's like, I feel like I have to sort of move up the projection for 
okay, when is he going to be a positive contributor on the defensive end? And, you know, that more than anything else, I think is the biggest sign from, you know, what we saw of him the second half of the season and why his stock is sort of risen back up to close to the level that it was before the start of the NBL season. Yeah. And I, I'm very excited eight months from now to just be getting bombarded with, oh, this clown said that Jang was going to be a good <laughs> defender um, because he's, I, I expect him to be really bad at the start of his rookie year, uh, maybe for the entire rookie year, because he did really struggle with the the step up in physicality and pace that the NBL offered. So I, I just naturally assume that he's going to struggle with that at the NBA level too. But, you know, after the first half of the year, under his weaknesses, I had in all caps, just defense, just all of it, because it was all bad. And just, I, I know we're kind of, or I'm beating a dead horse here, but that just massive improvement in the second half of the year, it showed that, okay, mentally, this kid has a lot more fight than I initially thought he did. And he's got a lot more to his game than I thought he did. And then what he showed. So the fact that he grew that much, you know, maybe we're saying that he just kind of regressed to the mean in a sense, because he just kind of got back to where a lot of people had him at the start of the year, but to hit that low of a low and then come back with the the fight and the improvement. And, you know, it wasn't just an effort improvement. It was a fundamental improvement where his body was more in sync. The feet stopped crossing when he, you know, flipped his hips to, you know, stay with a crossover. He wasn't turning to chase. It was you know, dropping his hip and dr- dropping his feet at the same time. So then he could slide over. It was fundamental improvements that really encouraged me for w- how much he could continue to grow over these next couple years of his early NBA career. I think it's more the awareness than anything else. Like, you know, there's a difference between, you know, guys who look lost on the defensive end because, you know, we talked about it earlier, his confidence issues, right? Mm-hmm. There's a difference between, you know, okay, I don't believe enough in my foot speed to be able to recover and get back into this play. And the guy just sort of blows past me and that's it versus I don't know where I'm supposed to be kind of defense. And, you know, all young players struggle to a certain extent with, you know, defensive placement. And that's something that is magnified at the NBA level, even in comparison to other professional leagues, as opposed to, you know, the dramatic difference between NCAA defense and NBA defense. But, you know, I think it is critical with Usman Jang that, you know, by the end of the season, he had more confidence in himself and got himself to the right places more often rather than just, okay, he's got these tools. Great. He looks more confident. Great. He still doesn't know where he's supposed to be. You know, like, mm-hmm. I'm not going to say that he's like Osha Agbaji level of knowing where to be on the defensive right. end, but you know, he just over the course of the season, it wasn't just that he, you know, was more confident in his ability to get to his spots, but that he had a better knowledge of where those spots were, where he was supposed to be than it looked like he did at the beginning of the season. Yeah, and that you know that that factored mostly into his on-ball defense, like we've been talking about. But the the off-ball did improve as well. You know, it wasn't as good where where you know where you necessarily want it to be because at his size, you would hope that there's a legitimate like weak side rim protector there. But we did see flashes of it. We saw a little more consistency with him tagging rollers and then recovering back out. Um, it was just when his guy would cut through and then he would turn his back on the play. It's like, oh, okay, you, you can't keep doing that because now the, the roller or cutters getting a wide open layup. Um, so they, there were steps in the right direction off ball. And there's a lot of things to be encouraged about that, you know, further coaching, further experience, all that 
those cliches that we frequently harp on, once those come into play, I expect it to improve. It, I'm not saying he's going to be a world class off ball defender, but there are the tools and there there there's you know a projectable development curve there that he could be a really good one. But like you said, the the increase in awareness as an on ball defender of uh, okay, where's the screen coming? How do I need to position myself and where do I need to be to either usher the guy to where I want him to go or to position myself to get around the screen or to counter his dribble moves or, you know, whatever that, that was really important. And just, it was really obvious too. So just quickly before we move from Jang onto the other international players that we're going to discuss today, I did want to at least touch briefly on his offensive game. Mm -hmm. Um, Certainly as well as the defense, something that grew and improved over the course of the season his two-point numbers were actually pretty impressive. He shot just under 52% from the field, uh, or sorry, not from the field, from two-point range. And, you know, he was pretty solid around the basket for the most part. His shooting was not great, but I'm, I'm curious for your thoughts on sort of what you saw from his shooting from the beginning of the year towards the end of the year, because... I don't know. He looked a little more confident, but I thought the confidence was a lot easier to see on the defensive end than the offensive end, personally. And I, I definitely buy the shot long term. Um, mm-hmm. You know, maybe not forty-two percent three-point shooter or anything like that, but high thirties as a spot-up guy, I, I definitely buy. I think the mechanics are sure. sound. He's got really good touch. Um, you know, and like like you said, the confidence improved. He he started finding his rhythm a little more often. Um, it looked like he was kind of a little unsure at times of how to kind of create his own shot off the dribble. So, you know, that will probably take some more time, but I don't think he really needs to do that early in his career. I think who he'll be asked to be as a role player is going to be someone who can, you know, spot up in the corner, attack closeouts and, you know, hit the occasional movement three. And so with the touch, the mechanics, the size, the release point, I I, I definitely buy the shooting long-term. Something else that we also tend to talk about relatively frequently on here is three-point percentage versus three-point volume. And he put up 96 threes and, you know, he only made 27% of them, which is not that great on a percentage basis. But, you know, with Jang, like nearly 50% of his attempts from the field this past season were three-pointers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, granted only 27% of them went in, but, you know, I feel like that's the kind of thing where he's at least confident enough in them to take a little over four or three pointers a game. And, you know, even if he doesn't stabilize at 42%, as you said, you know, even if it's more like the low to mid thirties range, I was at least very encouraged by the fact that he was willing to put up that many three point attempts, because at least the threat of him from long range is going to be pretty important early on in his NBA career in terms of establishing himself on offense. Yeah. And I, I think it's even going to be higher than mid thirties. Um, you know, I kind of think he'll land in the 37 to 39 range probably for his career and similar to his defense. I expect the offense to struggle his first year. I think he's going to have a pretty rough rookie year, which I know how reactionary fans love to be, um, but you know, the draft is for long-term purposes. And I think long-term there's a lot to be really, really excited about with his shot. Um, so yeah, and I, I just, if I was buying an offensive skill, it would be the spot up shooting and then the playmaking. 
Interesting. I don't think I'm quite as high on his shot as you are, but I definitely agree with you in the sense that he's not a non-shooter. Like he, yeah, yeah. You know, I think that he's probably closer to you know low to mid 30s, certainly than the 27 percent he put up this past season. And his free throw volume wasn't exactly all that high, so my usual partial free throw true thing isn't you know applicable here. But, you know, his touch from two-point range was decent enough, combined with the fact that he put up that volume of three-pointers, to make me think that, you know, maybe it'll take him a couple of years to get to the mid-30s from three-point range. But I think he's going to be at least an okay shooter as opposed to, you know, the semi-disastrous portent of 27%. I don't think that's quite fair, especially given that, you know, he wasn't just only taking wide-open three, wide open threes and clanking them, right? Like, that was a pretty significant portion of his shot diet. Yeah, and he he's gonna he's gonna force defenders to close out on him, and then once mm-hmm. they do that, that's where his off the dribble game gets really interesting because I I think he's a really talented passer. Um, I think there's a lot to love there. He's got to be able to be a little more consistent of a scorer off the dribble, I think. Um, but I if he can just make the make defenders hesitate on closing out or just forcing him or or just forcing them to long close out on him um, so he can then attack the paint. That's where his game gets really interesting. Cause I, I don't think he's ever going to be, you know, one of these wing initiators where like a Jason Tatum or anything like that. But I do think he's someone who can attack closeouts, create off the dribble, cr- run an occasional pick and roll, um, and then create for others out of that as well as himself. All right. So before we wrap things up here, I just wanted to talk through some of the other international prospects in this class. So spoiler alert, a couple of the guys that we're going to discuss are guys that we have discussed at quite a decent length in this podcast in previous episodes. But I just wanted to start out by asking you who you think uh, will be the first two international players taken in this draft. To me, I think it seems pretty clear at this point that Usman Jang will be the first international guy drafted, assuming we're not counting, say, Dyson Daniels as an international guy for this exercise. Yeah. But I personally have Nikolaevich higher on my board than Usman Jang, still surprising probably nobody who's been listening to this podcast for this season, at least. But even though I think that Jovic will end up being drafted after Usman Jang on draft night, to me, I think that those are almost certainly going to be the first two international guys drafted. But what are your thoughts on that? Do you think maybe there's another international guy who ends up going ahead of one or both of them? I don't. And, you know, like you said, this is assuming that anyone who played in the U.S. this last season, Dyson Daniels, Jeremy Sohan, et cetera, Mm -hmm. et cetera, they're not international guys. So Drang and Jovic would be the first two that I expect to get drafted. I wouldn't necessarily take them in that order, but that that would be the international order that I would anticipate unless we get some real funky Leonard or some real, really, really, really weird Leonard Miller news. That would certainly be surprising. <laughs> I, I would not expect Leonard Miller to be drafted ahead of either of those players, but you subtly hinted at the fact that Usman Jang and Nikolajovic are not your top two international prospects in that order. So I'm going to use my having been podcasting with you for a long time ESP and predict that Gabriel Pachita is the guy that you have as the second ranked international in this class. So he's someone who we've talked about a bit on here and I have him 
behind Jang as the third international guy in his class. I think he's probably the third international guy in his class to get drafted. And I also think that the two of us and the No Ceilings NBA Collective as a whole are higher on Prochita than general consensus. So why don't we talk about Prochita really quickly? He's someone who has a fascinating skill set and who, last I checked, I think we both had him as end of the first round kind of player. So what are your thoughts on Prochita? Yeah, so and I, I have him number 20 right now. Um, I oh, think okay. he's, he's an elite off-ball shooter, awesome athlete, uh, can create space off the dribble after attacking closeouts or, you know, after running off screens, he's not going to be an ISO guy or an on-ball creator much. But as an off-ball scorer, there's very little to not fall in love with. Um, and he takes some really, really tough shots too, both both off the dribble and off the catch. Um so just his balance, his explosiveness, he's a legit athlete. There's nothing sneaky about his athleticism. Um, he loves dunking on guys and does it pretty easily. Um, and then defensively, you know, he's it's not going to be a strength, but I think he's fine. And I believe he's 6'7". Yeah, so and he's 6'7", almost 200 pounds. So that size alone affords him a little more leeway than if he was, say, 6'4". So... The diverse off-ball scoring game, though, is what, you know, should get you really excited because it is extremely fun. So I'm with you on a whole lot of that. I have Prochita at 28 right now, so slightly lower than you do, but I think he's still a pretty clear first-round guy. I mean, Mm -hmm. really, for me, it's, you know, it's a pretty, I don't know, I don't want to say basic evaluation because I think that, you know, sort of belies the issue of trying to evaluate him, but you know, he's six, seven, he's an exceptional off ball shooter and he's an excellent athlete and defensively. Yeah. I mean, nothing, you know, yeah. too special, yeah. nothing too special to write home about, but also nothing that makes me think, Oh, he's just going to be one of the worst defenders in the NBA. Right. It's like, okay. You know, there's some stuff there. He's fine. And he definitely has the size and athletic tools to be more than fine as a defender eventually. But I mean, ultimately, just given his prowess as an off-ball shooter, cutter type, who can do a lot of damage offensively without the ball in his hands, I think that there are quite a few teams towards the back portion of the first round who could plug him into their rotation sooner rather than later and be really happy with where they got him, You know, especially if he does end up falling out of the first round, as most other draft outlets, I think, believe at this point. Yeah, and I, I would anticipate him probably going even mid to late second. Um, but yeah. I, I think the talent is a pretty clear first round. For, or I think he's a pretty clear first round talent. Um, it's just they, there's too much there on offense to not buy into it. And I think you summed up his defense perfectly. It's it's yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, that's not super hard hitting or in depth, but it's like he's not going to kill you, and he's not going to win you a game with his defense. So. It is what it is, but God, the, the the scoring and the athleticism, it's it's legit. And I I expect teams to take him in the second and then probably stash him for a year. I would prefer if they brought him over and stashed him in the G League um, and kind of keep him close to home and develop him internally. But he's going to have to go to the right organization willing to invest that time and resources into doing that. So we'll, we'll see. It, it will be fascinating to see where he lands. So someone else who might slash probably will get drafted ahead of Prochita, who we've talked about a bunch on here, so I don't want to spend too much time on, but Ishmael Kawagate out of Paris, you know, center type who 
clearly has a lot of interesting tools that we have discussed numerous times on this podcast. I think the odds are probably better that he goes ahead of Prachita in the draft rather than the other way around. I'm still pretty high on Kamigate. I have him as an early second round guy, but I think at this point, I just believe in Prachita's scoring and off-ball offense more than I believe in Kamigate's package as a whole, but he's someone certainly as well who might even get end of the first round type consideration, if not going in the early second. Yeah. And I, I have him at 34, uh, really late bloomer, um, just really, really good athlete. And I, I think he's one of the better at rim finishing centers in this class, uh, not just with dunks or lob finishes, but he's got really nimble feet, uh, just can sidestep guys really good with spins, uh, really really high motor and the defensive upside is there it was just a little too inconsistent for me to have him you know top 20 like we see at some places I think he just kind of gets lost in space at times so hopefully that's a symptom of the late blooming and with more experience and coaching that improves and if it does he could be one of the biggest steals from this draft and the last player that I wanted to talk about in the little international segment here is a teammate of Uzman Jang. Hugo Besson for the New Zealand Breakers. And he's someone who I had as like an early second round guy early in the year. And unfortunately, after his first five games, really his first four games, he kind of fell off a little bit, which obviously wasn't that great for his draft stock. And the physical testing at the draft combine was not exactly great, which is, you know, not encouraging. But I do still think that Besson is someone who teams should definitely look at as like a late second round draft and stash potential type guy, because I think that if he figures out a little bit more of the shot selection stuff and gets a little bit choosier about his passing, he could be someone who's a really valuable third string, maybe even backup point guard down the line. So I think at this point, you know, the odds of him going higher than like late forties, early fifties in the draft are pretty low, but I have been more intrigued by him than that at times throughout this season. And I think he's someone who definitely could be, you know, worth watching down the line if he ends up being a draft and stash guy who develops a bit, but certainly the early season run was incredibly impressive and he kind of tailed off after that. But even down the stretch run of the season, he did still have a few really impressive games that, make me less worried than I might've been to sort of buy into his future potential as like a late second round draft and stash type. Yeah. And I, I have him in the back half of the second and it it sucks because I really like him as a player. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think he's a really good off ball shooter. I think he has a really, really high work rate. I like him as that just kind of obnoxious point of attack defender. Um, but he just, underwhelmed me a lot with his on-ball stuff whether it's scoring or playmaking like I, I thought he I thought he was a good passer but not a great one and he just kind of felt replaceable um yeah and I the, saying that it sounds harsh um but it feels like those types of players are on every team every team needs those types of players the problem is there are just a lot of them so he's going to really have to take a step up with his on-ball scoring, whether it's, you know, diversifying his at-room finishing craft, developing a more reliable pull-up or step-back jumper. If he can do that, then I kind of expect him to exceed wherever he gets drafted. Um, I I think the defense is real. I think the off-ball shooting is very real. It's just finding some way to impact the game 
um, on the ball because given his size, he's going to be expected to be on the ball a good amount. So upping that playmaking impact, upping that scoring, it's, it's going to be crucial for him. I really wanted to be more impressed by him than I was, especially down the stretch run of the season, because you know, there were moments there where he looked like someone who, as you mentioned, you know, the kind of player that every team needs as like a bench guard who yep. can, you know, keep the ball moving and shoot off ball and shoot, you know, on ball as well. But I don't know. I mean, you know, especially given that the athletic numbers were not that great and that's not something that I rely on to a large extent at all, but right. you know, that's also just, I think one more potential concern with him that, you know, his inconsistency, especially down the stretch run of the season. I mean, if he's going to be a long-term or honestly, even short-term NBA player, you know, given his athletic deficiencies relative to the rest of the ridiculous giant size freak athletes of the NBA, he's, I think he's just going to need to be more consistent, honestly, more than anything else. Cause like, you know, if he's someone who you can rely on for 10 minutes a game as a solid defender, ball mover, off ball shooter type of point guard, I think there's a real role for him in the NBA, but if he's as inconsistent as he's, as he was down the stretch of the NBL season, you know, it's a little bit harder to make that sort of projection. Yeah. And I, I think best case scenario for him is that he develops into a Tyus Jones esque player. Mm -hmm. um, the problem is that Tyus Jones is a really good player and there's a long way to go for him to do that. But if he finds a little more consistency um, with his shot, with his just overall two way impact, you know, there, there, there is a route for him to get there. Um, it's just not an easy one because yeah. opportunity fit it all it all really really matters for these guys later in the draft it matters for everyone but it matters for you know the guys later in the draft a lot more yeah i mean the odds of any of these players taking late in the second round sticking around is very heavily dependent on how quickly can they work their way into a rotation and yeah. you know if they end up in the wrong place and there isn't an avenue for them to get into that rotation then you know, maybe they're the kind of player who, you know, two years down the line, they end up on some team and you know, everybody's like, why did, uh, you know, X team that drafted him first not keep him around? It's like, well, there were four point guards ahead of him and that's just kind of how it worked out. But, you know, when those kinds of things happen, I mean, especially for the guys who are, you know, towards the end of the bench slash on the fringe of the NBA world, just getting into the right situation can mean all the difference between, you know, finding a role for yourself in the league and being out of the league. I mean, I'm willing to bet that there are a whole lot of people who wonder why was PJ Tucker like in the NBA slash professional basketball wilderness for so long. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, you know, he didn't find the right fit right after he was drafted and he sort of had a journeyman role for a while. And then, you know, the right team picked him up and all of a sudden, Hey, he's a really critical defensive contributor you know, rotation player, even starter in some places, you know, like a lot of, and granted a lot of that is because PJ Tucker developed and grew a lot yes. as a player, but you know, the flip side of that also is like, well, the, the PJ Tucker within PJ Tucker was always within PJ Tucker. And it just took the right team taking a chance on him for him to actually grow into that kind of player, as opposed to, you know, for some other guys on the fringes of the NBA, you know, maybe they would have been a PJ Tucker type if they'd ended up in the right situation. And instead, you know, they get like a cup of coffee in the NBA and then go to the EuroLeague or NBL and become high level starters there. You know, it's not like they 
didn't necessarily have the talent to be a 10th man in the NBA. It's just, they didn't find the right situation. for it. Yeah. And a lot of the time, those guys can make a lot more money overseas <laughs> with, with, yeah. with, with, with a bigger role, especially foreign guys like Basson. Um, so if he doesn't stick, I don't think that means he's a bad player. He might just end up going back to France or New Zealand or the NBL and playing a bigger role and making more money than he would over here, which I know sounds crazy. Like, but there are a lot of guys who play overseas who make a lot more money um, than they would if they came to the NBA. So culture changes fit organizational culture role in a rotation. It, it all matters. It all factors into these things and it can all just significantly skew how a prospect turns out. All right. Anything else you want to talk about here before we wrap things up? Um, I'm thinking I'm going to write about Max Christie for Friday. Um, so keep an eye out for that. And then awesome things coming over at No Ceilings. So definitely keep an eye out for that. Wow. This is an NBA Deep Dives podcast first. You know who you're writing about for this week, and I don't. So I will Slacking, probably, I know, right? I will probably be writing about Darian Sebron for Thursday. So if that is what ends up happening, then be on the lookout for that. But yeah, I'm, I'm falling into Metcalf territory here. I don't know what to do with myself. <laughs> So disappointed. Can't believe you would do this. I I apologize to to all who. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, he is Tyler Metcalf. You can find him on Twitter at t m e t c a l f one one, and you can find his work on No Ceilings NBA as well as hashtag Basketball and Canisupus. Be sure to be on the lookout for that Max Christie piece on Friday. I know that Max Christie is someone who Tyler has very much bought into, so I will be fascinated to see what he has to say about Christie's game on Friday. You can find me on Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N, and you can find my written work on No Ceilings NBA as well as hashtag basketball and over at Nets Republic. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. That's always much appreciated on our end. And if you have any feedback, feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.